0: you don't have the king in your life, you have nothing. I've been privileged to do ministry in lots of different settings, and I've done ministry with corporate CEOs who were billionaires, and I've done ministry with people on death row. And I got to tell you, I actually feel more confidence going into a prison to tell people about the king than I do going into corporate offices to do it. I remember one week in my life, I went to visit a couple whose baby, 18-month-old baby, had died in the crib. They, they're still not sure why he died. And they were devastated. And I went to visit them. They lived in government-supported housing. It was... a most people would consider a really dangerous neighborhood, and I drove over to their place and I went to their very little apartment where they were raising their three kids to grieve with them and weep with them. They uh, were dealing with drug addiction themselves, their life was in shambles, and they were in shambles. Four days later, I got in a plane and I flew to an island off the coast of Florida, a privately owned island, to do ministry with some of the wealthiest people in the world. And they seemed like they had everything. Everything the world offered. Private jets, a private island they lived on. But if you spend long enough with them, you'll find out For instance, one of the women I got to spend time with who owns a major steel corporation in the country, that after 38 years of marriage, her husband left her for a younger woman, and she hasn't spoken to her son in years. She seems like she has it all. On the surface, she has everything the world offers. But if you spend enough time with her, you'll find out that her life is in shambles, too. It's amazing how appearances indeed can be deceiving. And we need to realize that everyone desperately needs a relationship with God. But everyone has a massive problem called human sin. As we go into this few minutes together this morning, I'm keenly aware that we need a miracle in each of our hearts to come to terms With the problem that's at the root of all our other problems. The Bible calls it sin. It's rebellion against God. It's a broken relationship with our King that we all equally share when we boot up as human beings. We're all in this together. And so to come to grips with this is incredibly difficult for proud human beings. And we need to come to grips with it. It really does take a miracle. And here's the interesting thing. I think of everything we believe as Christians. The easiest one to prove is what we're going to talk about this morning. And it's called the human sin problem. Uh, The Bible calls it rebellion against our creator. Rooted in a self-deification. We view ourselves as our own little gods. Running our lives our own way, not the way the king would have us run our lives. We actually think we can ascend to his throne and dethrone him. And that's the reality we all share. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, the Bible says. We've all gone our own way. And this leads to what Martin Luther called an inward curvature of the self where I'm living for myself. Isn't it amazing? You never have to teach a little kid to be selfish. All the work has to go in the other direction. Ask any parent, they'll tell you. (laughs) And so we've got to come to grips with the reality of sin in our own hearts, in our own lives. But here's the crazy thing. I think of everything we believe as Christians, the easiest one to prove is a human sin problem. And if you don't believe that, just read the news for 10 seconds. And you'll see we've got a massive sin problem in the world. If you don't believe we've got a sin problem, just take an honest look into your own heart for 10 seconds, and you'll recognize an an invariable selfishness in your heart. A self-preservation, a self-absorption. It's just the human reality we all need to come to grips with. But even though I think it's the easiest thing to give evidence for, I think of everything we believe as Christians, it's the hardest thing for us to accept. It's the hardest thing for us to honestly come to terms with to truly get to the end of ourselves. And so it takes a miracle. It takes a miracle to get where we want to go this morning. So let's pray. Lord, help us as we go to your word and depend on the Spirit to come to grips with the problem at the root of all our other problems this morning. Father, help us, each of us, every one of us, even those of us who've been walking with you a long time, and have seen the ravages that sin causes, the destruction. Lord, help us to all come to grips with our own sin problem more deeply this morning. By the Spirit's miraculous power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'd open your Bibles again to Daniel chapter 4, we continue our story highlighting Nebuchadnezzar's ping-pong game he's playing in his own heart, going back and forth, having these dreams that are deeply troubling to him, seeing Daniel's God provide for him and getting to the end of himself and getting to a kind of recognition that God is the one true king and he's the one who really has what he needs And we need all to get to this point. Look at this quote by Alan Ross, this excellent commentator. A thorough knowledge of the word of God and unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh and the devil. We have come here this week to gain territory over the world, the flesh and the devil, these things that war against God and his ways as his kingdom is advancing. And so we need a thorough understanding of the word of God. We don't come to truth just by looking in ourselves. We go to God's word to find it. So we need Could you leave that quote up there, guys? Um yeah, let's hang with it. until. Uh, so we, we need the word of God, an unwavering trust in his goodness. So we need to know God through his word and trust him that he's good, that he's got your best interest in mind, that even when he tells you truth that's hard to hear, like the rebellion in our hearts, it's good news, right? I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to say, well, finding out about my sin conditions bad news. No, any truth is good news. When a doctor tells you the truth about your cancer, he's telling you what you need to know. It's good for him to tell you the truth. He's not a bad guy because he's telling you the truth. If you have cancer and he says all you have is the flu, that's a bad doctor. And if a preacher doesn't tell you the truth from God's word about the reality of your condition, you should sue him for spiritual malpractice. And I don't want to be sued for spiritual malpractice. I want to tell you the truth about our condition that we equally share. And so we need a thorough knowledge of the Word of God and an unwavering trust in His goodness if we're going to have victory. And we've come here this week for greater victory in our lives. That's what we want. That's why we're here. And so we need to learn from Nebuchadnezzar's back and forth process of getting to the end of himself and then responding to God in certain ways that seem right so in Daniel chapter 2 after Daniel interprets his dream look at verse 47 in Daniel 2 it says then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel that's very interesting so the the messenger of God's provision is who he pays homage to Daniel 2.47, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him, to Daniel. He's missing the point. Daniel couldn't be more clear that he's just the messenger. He doesn't come up with the interpretation and the dream God does, but rather than directing the praise to God, he directs it to Daniel. And commanded an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God. Notice that. He sees Yahweh, the God of Daniel, as the true God, but not to the point where it's his God. Is God of God's Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. And so he responds in a way that that seems to be heading in the right direction but misses the point. And immediately after this, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God's power. He turns around then and constructs the very image Daniel warns him about in the dream and he misses the point. And he causes idolatry to increase in the land. Idolatry is a very important thing. Do you know That when the Bible talks about our human problem at the heart of everything, the way it describes what we call sin is more than any other way he describes it as idolatry. And so we've got to realize that what that means is idolatry is worshiping an object that isn't God. And we all worship. Don't buy into this idea that, that religious people worship and, and other people don't. Everybody worships. Everybody. What do I mean by that? I mean you're giving your heart to something, to someone. We're created to worship. You can't help but do it. It's going to come out in some way. It's going to be expressed in some way. It may be your girlfriend. It may be your boyfriend. It may be the sport that you love. You know what may be getting your heart more than anything else? Social media. Likes on Instagram may be driving your life. I see people show up to the Grand Canyon, and within seconds, they're taking pictures of themselves in front of the Grand Canyon. So they can immediately think about putting it on their social media and create the image they want people to have. We can live for our image, for my image. I remember when I was a kid, I didn't like my profile. I'm not sure why, it's a fine profile. But, but I can remember in elementary school, if there was a, especially if there was a girl that I liked... I would make sure that I I would move my desk so I was facing her rather than her seeing my profile. And so rather than thinking about loving other people and caring about other people, I'm walking into a room as a me monster. It's all about me and how I'm being perceived and how I'm being seen and whether the image I want to project is being appreciated, right? Right? It's amazing. I remember early on in life, I, I was the stinky kid in school. I don't know if you have those kids. It seems like every school has a stinky kid or two. A lot of times they're brothers. And, and, and I was my brother and I were the stinky kids in our elementary school, literally. I mean, we had a rough home life. My brother and I, in many ways, raised ourselves. And, and so, so it was rough. And, and so I was a stinky kid. But I, and I remember on the same day in fifth grade, I remember realizing that i could make people laugh that that i had a sense of humor that people laughed at and and it, i remember it, it was a ridiculous i fake tripped going to sharpen my pencil on the way up, I fake-tripped and made a whole bunch of people laugh, and it felt so good to have social acceptance. And in the same day, we were playing kickball, and I kicked a home run. And then I, co- I made a, a game-saving catch in the outfield playing kickball. Do you still play kickball? Or is that, like, too dangerous or something? But, um, <laughs> but I remember, in the same day in fifth grade, remembering, I think I'm funny, and I think I'm a good athlete. And I think those are my sources for social acceptance. And it was amazing how those became my go-to sources of identity. And they became really important to me, my, my humor and my athleticism. Well, we all have those things where we, we can make idols even out of gifts of God as our go-to source of identity rather than Him. How fragile those things are. If you base your identity in those things, you're in big trouble. I remember when we adopted our daughter Caroline when she was eight and then our daughter Paige when she was seven. We had two girls, and we were trying to raise two girls in this this culture that objectifies little girls and turns them into objects that are scrutinized and evaluated. And I remember sitting down with a young woman who had spent her whole life working with adolescent girls, and we said to her, Megan, what do we need to know about raising girls? And she said, here's what I learned about girls. Very early on in their lives, and we found this is true of boys. We have two boys too now. Very early on in their lives, but in some ways even more for girls. Every girl I've ever met very early learned to define herself by a word or two. And the word could be pretty or smart or ugly or dumb. And it almost doesn't even matter if the words are positive or negative, because if you end up defining yourself by a word and needing to keep that image maintained or get away from that image, it'll crush you. It'll reduce you to something pitiful. Even if it's a gift you have, and parents can feed this oh, she's our little student, or she, he's our athlete or he's our funny one, and you end up developing an identity that you live for, that you construct your whole world around, and that's exhausting, and that will crush you because we need to find ourselves in relationship to our king, not to how we're perceived on a horizontal level. And so we need to get to the end of ourselves where we're not living in the exhausting treadmill of trying to maintain an image all the time and live for that. And then we'll find escapes like pornography or addictions of different kinds that will paralyze us and crush us. And Nebuchadnezzar is on this back and forth idolatrous path. Now, he literally built a physical idol that people were to bow down and worship before. I bet none of you, unless you're from a Hindu family or background maybe, have ever literally bowed down and worshiped an idol, a statue of some kind. And so it's easy for us to look at pagans who literally do that and sort of see them as primitive. Well, we don't, we don't have a problem with idolatry, do we? Because we've never bowed befa- before a, a visible object of worship. Be careful, because idolatry, idol worship, is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of whether or not you do before phys- physical object of worship. And, and so we, we've got to change our thinking about it. Listen to this A.W. Tozer quote. Do I have it next in there? Yeah, listen. It, it, idolatry, is that is that? There, uh, there we go. Let us beware... Lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry, idol worship, consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized people are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. He goes on. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. When they knew God, wrote Paul, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So idolatry, idol worship, worshiping false gods is a hard issue. And that false god can be anything in this world. It can even be good things. I, I adore my wife. I adore her. Anyone who knows me will tell you that. My kids roll their eyes constantly when I keep saying, do you know how awesome your mother is? And they're like, yes, dad, we know how awesome our mother is. Yes, stop kissing in the kitchen, please. And and they, I love getting them riled up like that. But um, but I adore my wife. But I can remember, I think I was married about 18 months. And I I don't know why, but I was in our apartment and I was just thinking about my wife dying, if, if God, I said, well, how tragic would that be, I'm thinking, if a year and a half into marriage, my wife died. And I remember thinking about that, and I didn't even realize it, but I looked down, and my right hand had become a fist. I said, what's that all about? And I realized what it was. I knew what it was. I was imagining my wife dying, And I was shaking my fist in God's face for taking my wife. And I looked at that and I thought, oh my, that's a problem. I went and got on my knees and I asked God for forgiveness for going down the road of turning my wife, an amazing gift from God, into an idol. She's not mine. And I don't need her ultimately. God uses her to provide amazing grace to me but she's not my God, he is. Every means of God caring for us is expendable. Even good things can become idols of the heart, and so we've got to be so careful not to go back and forth like Nebuchadnezzar does. He sees these guys released from the fiery furnace, and he gives honor to Yahweh. He gives honor to God. But then look at how it turns. The video does a great job of showing this turn where he actually starts to take pride in his humility. He actually starts to recognize God for who he is and he starts to take pride in his recognition of God for who he is. Isn't that wild how we do that? Our hearts are so convoluted in the ways they operate so often. And we're constantly being deceived from the outside, but we're also constantly being self-deceptive. Our capacity for self-deception is astounding. My ability to rationalize my sin, excuse my sin, uh, blame my sin, spiritualize my sin, minimize, trivialize my sin is just amazing. I'm astounded at how brilliant I am in those things, to my shame. And we've got to see what happens here. So he gives honor to Yahweh, but but then look how it turns. Look at chapter 4, verse 28. Watch this. It's fascinating. So Nebuchadnezzar becomes quite proud of himself, right? And God humbles him. Watch, Daniel 4, 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. God visibly shows The way Nebuchadnezzar is living a life disconnected from God and that means he's living like an animal. Do you know the big difference between humans and animals? We worship. We worship. You know, the big difference between you and a monkey, even a high-functioning monkey, is not opposable thumbs. It's that we pray and they don't. And so when we live disconnected from God, we're not living as human beings are intended to live. Fundamentally, we are created for relationship with God, to commune with him, to worship him, to obey him, to have intimacy with him. That's what we're made for any, more than anything else. So when we're disconnected from that, We're really living in an animal way and God just makes that really obvious in Nebuchadnezzar's lives. And what's what's troubling is we can live lives that look very sophisticated on the outside like those billionaires that I've gotten to know. But on the inside, if we're disconnected from God, we're not living as human beings are intended. And so I I love how Sherman points that out. He's saying, look, we just see what's going on on the outside right now. But Nebuchadnezzar's big problem is he doesn't walk with the king. He doesn't obey the king. And so we're just getting evidence on the outside of the deeper problem of disconnection from the king. And, and so God restores him after a while, right? At the end of Nebuchadnezzar, he restores him. I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. So he's living as a crazy man, and disconnected lives from God is crazy. It's crazy. And and his reason's restored. And then he worships God again. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, verse 34. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But look how it turns in verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and splendor returned to me my counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol the honor of the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he's able to humble do you hear that? you can hear that underneath it all it's still all about him a life of selfishness a life of Nebuchadnezzar-centric living. (laughs) And that's the problem we all have. We've got to understand the difference between truly getting to the end of ourselves and just being thankful God got us out of a mess. There's a big difference. There's a movie with Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise, and the entire movie, uh, Burt Reynolds has lost hope In life, and he just wants his life to end. And so, near the end of the movie, he swims out into the ocean so that he'll drown. And he swims so far out that he will not be able to get back. And as he's about to go under and his life is about to come to an end, he has a new sense of hope. And he wants to live. And he knows he can't get back in. So, it's wild. In the movie, he starts praying. He starts praying, God, if you save me, if you get me back to shore, I'll give half my money to charity. God, if you save me, I won't tell lies anymore. God, if you save me, I won't be greedy. And he makes all these promises to God. But it's wild, it's fascinating that Hollywood isn't about honoring God, but sometimes movies like this that have no intention of honoring God can't help but get to the truth. And as he starts swimming back in, as he gets closer and closer, and it seems like he's gonna make it, his promises start getting backed off. And he starts saying, God, I'll give you 20% of all the money I make." And God, I I won't lie as much as I used to. And he just starts pulling back on all these promises he's making God. And he finally gets to the shore, and he forgets about all the promises he had made to God. You see, he was desperate, and so he went to God. But as soon as he feels secure again, he goes his own way. You know, there are a lot of religious people, there are a lot of moral people in the world that have no relationship with God. And there are a lot of people whose lives are really messed up on the outside but love God deeply and are depending on him. We can't go by superficial appearances. And so Nebuchadnezzar is a good example of someone who just doesn't get it. He he may get it intellectually for a while or emotionally for a while, but he doesn't get it. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. And so so there's a difference between superficial appearance and true love for God, true devotion to the king. And we've got to come to grips with our pride. We've got to understand what the human problem is because there's been a radical shift in my lifetime toward what I would call a human-centeredness even to the way we think about Christian things. And so often I will hear people talk about sin and God's not really the issue. The king's not really the issue. So I want you to see the best description of sin I think you can find. Go to Romans 1, if you would, in, your New, in the New Testament Just go to the right in your New Testament, sort of in the middle, after the Gospels. We've got Romans, the book of Romans. It's it's a big old book among the letters written in the New Testament here. Listen to this description of sin. I think it's the best one you'll ever hear. Romans 1, verse 18. Here the page stopping. All right, here we go. Rome, you ever have a... You ever Maybe this is your pastor. I don't know. He says, would you turn to Habakkuk chapter 1? And then he starts reading, and he's done by the time you get there. I, I don't want to be that kind. Of, that's very frustrating to me when that happens. It's um, so Romans 1.18. Here we go. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. I mean, it's so obvious when you look at creation, when you look inside the human experience that there's a God. What can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. For his his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, empty, vain, right, in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because, here's the best definition of sin you can hear. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. They worshipped the trash that washed up on the shore rather than the God who made the ocean and who made them. They worship the work of their hands, which is actually a way of worshiping ourselves. We exchange God worship for self-worship, in other words. And that's what we need to realize sin is. Now, I want you to realize how hard this is for us to understand because there's something in us that hates to come to grips with the reality of our own sin. But I also want us to realize that we are bombarded constantly with messages that trivialize sin, that mock sin, the very concept of it, that make it what you really want. You know what I'm talking about? Here, listen to this. I bet, I've never seen research on it, but I will bet you that the place outside the Bible you've seen the word sin more than anywhere else in your lifetime is describing desserts. What do I mean? Well, I've collected examples. I have dozens. I'll just show you a few. Look at this one sinfully delicious ch- cookie dough conquest. What's that about? Look at this one. Um, so good it's sinful. Sinfully delicious. Look at this one. The confection confess your love for cheesecake. Forgive me chocolate for I've sinned. I've not yet had my daily confection. <laughs> What's that about? That's bizarre. Look at this one. Guilty pleasures. Even for a guy who's paid to indulge, these dishes are sinfully over the top. I walk into my pharmacy right next to my house not long ago, and there's a display for nail polish. Not that I was looking. But look at this display. Isn't that bizarre? When you think about sin as rebellion against God, but then you step back and you say, you know, my whole life, people have been telling me that the dessert on the menu I really want the most is sinful. Talk to me. What does that do to your perception of sin? Talk to me. It it okay. What does it do? It makes it okay. It makes it okay. What else? Yeah. Attractive. What's that? It makes, it attractive. makes it attractive. Yeah. Yeah, you become desensitized to the grievousness, the horror of sin. How else would you describe what happens? It's really mocking the whole concept, isn't it? It's like sin. (laughs) You know, what that means is sin is attractive. It's, It's what you really want deep down, isn't it? That nail polish, that dessert, that cookie dough conquest, whatever it is. Oh, it's so good, it's sinful. And what does that mean about righteousness? Boring, unattractive. You've been bombarded. You don't even realize it, do you? I've become sensitized to the desensitizing effort marketers have towards sin. And I came close to flipping that nail polish table over at CVS. Because I'm so concerned that we get numb to the reality of sin. You know how hard it is to really get this? But we've got to come to grips with the reality of sin in our lives. And there there are just a few things I want you to realize about sin. Sin is not primarily the effects of sin. And this is how I hear it talked about so often. That sin is brokenness, which which is clearly the effect of sin. Sin is woundedness, which is clearly an effect of sin. Uh, Sin makes us lonely or discouraged or hopeless. Yes, those are all symptoms of the problem. But those aren't the problem. The problem is giving God the finger. That's what sin is. It's a a relational problem. It's a worship problem. It's a personal problem. It means we're lovers of self, right? Look at this verse. Uh, let's look at these biblical terms. Notice the primary terms for the problem are not the effects of the problem in my loneliness, my sadness, my helplessness, my... But, but look what it is. It's missing the mark. It's evil, disobedience, transgression, breaking God's law, iniquity, lawlessness, trespass, ignorance, godlessness, wickedness, unbelief, unrighteousness, unholiness. Those are the primary biblical terms to describe our big human problem. And those things don't just deserve pity and compassion. The effects of those things do. Those things deserve judgment by a holy God. You know, we have a hard time with things like hell and judgment, I think because we minimize the holiness of God, and then we minimize the, the horror of our sin, and we think it's, it's a good dessert. But when we see God for who he is, we see our sin for what it is, and we know, yeah, I deserve judgment. I deserve judgment. To be judged for this sin, hell becomes a category because of course God hates sin and evil. Of course he does. What kind of God wouldn't hate sin and evil? What kind of God would be unmoved by rebellion against him that's dishonoring to him and destructive to everything and everyone? Listen to this quote by, again, Alan Ross on on human pride. We have that quote by Ross, guys. The fall of the human race starts with an action but with an attitude of the heart. Not with an act, but with a sneer. The serpent is denying what God said. He's mocking what God said. And so our heart is the problem, and that's what we need to realize. Sin is a heart problem. Sin originates in the human heart, and that's something we need to come to grips with. It's not just what we do externally. It has a heart source, and it's a worship problem. It's not primarily being broken, wounded, lost, blind, unfulfilled, lacking meaning, which are all effects of sin. It's a rebellion against God. It's worshiping the wrong God, which is ultimately worshiping ourselves. It's a relationship problem. We've got a broken relationship with God, and it's grounded in disobeying God. Vital points we've got to come to grips with. So it's a relational problem. It's a worship problem. It is a problem of the heart. These are all realities, but I don't want to make it too overly spiritualized. It boils down to disobeying God. God gives us a sense of right and wrong. He tells us clearly what's right and wrong in his word. And so you find out whether or not you really love God are devoted to God, see him for who he is by simply doing what he says in that devotion to him because you love him. And so you depend on him, and you don't get attracted by the trash when it washes up. As soon as it washes up, you stay devoted to God, and you see the trash for what it is, worthless when it's disconnected from God. And so it boils down to just obeying God. And I want you to realize how hard it is for your generation to come to grips with this kind of obedience. You know what Jesus says? He says, if you love me, if you love me, He doesn't lead with, you'll sing passionately to me during worship times. He doesn't lead with, even you'll be interested in reading the Bible. You know, just educated people are interested in reading the Bible if they want to be educated. It doesn't even mean you love being with other people. That's what we're created for. That's a natural thing. But what Jesus says, if you love me, do you know what he says the test will be? But you know... You'll obey my commandments. You'll do what I say. That's the indicator. You really love him. And so disobedience is is a turning from him. Obedience is saying yes to him. You guys remember Smokey the Bear? Remember what he used to look like? He was was very authoritarian. He had a, a ranger hat. And maybe he pointed at you like this. Remember? I have a picture of Smokey with my daughter Paige when she was a cutie. A little, she's still a cutie, but she's a little cutie there. Look at Smokey. You remember what he used to say? Only
1: you. There you go. Only
0: you can prevent forest fires. What's that? It's called responsibility. Do you know there's been a complete Smokey makeover? Did you know that? Have you seen the new Smokey? He doesn't look like this anymore. He doesn't say that anymore. This is the new Smokey. Now, what's behind this makeover? Here's, here's the marketing genius behind the makeover. Here's what he says. Listen to this, look at this quote. The hugs are part of the decision to turn Smokey into a character who's depicted as rewarding people rather than entreating them or admonishing them to take personal responsibility. It's moving the tone away from sober, sober, and then check this out, which doesn't resonate with young people. He added, while maintaining the seriousness of the issue, Smokey's changing from a teacher or an authority figure into a model of positive reinforcement. I am all for positive reinforcement. I I was a football coach for years. I'm a dad. I'm a teacher. I'm a pastor. I'm all for hugs. I'm all for affirmation. I'm all for encouragement. But I'm also for responsibility, owning what we need to own. And we have a hard time owning our sin. Man, we are so good and quick to blame, excuse, minimize, trivialize, make it look better than it really is. But we can't get to Jesus if we don't get to the end of ourselves. We've got to be willing to take responsibility for our sin and own it. Oh, it's hard to do, but it's the beginning of freedom. And look at the solution God has to our sin problem that we'll talk about tonight. Christ suffered once for sins. He paid the penalty. The righteous for the unrighteous. He didn't just die for us. He lived for us. Why? That he might bring us to the king. Bring us to God. Intimacy with God is the goal of it all. Not just becoming moral people, religious people, but becoming people who know the king and are brought to him through Christ. We'll get to that tonight. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace in our lives. Thank you for telling us the truth like a good soul doctor does about the condition we're all in as sinners. Lord, would you help us to own it, to take responsibility for the rebellion in our own hearts, for the damage we've done, for the dishonoring to you that we have lived in. Lord, even for those of us who have come to grips with this and owned it, Years and years ago, I pray that you would help us to realize our sin more deeply so we can realize the magnitude of your grace more deeply. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.